Hello everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week I'm examining the beloved adaptation of the well-received exploration of life and death, of martyrdom, of loss and healing, of the damned and the saved, a film brought to us from a filmmaker who is just as much a rabid King fan as you or me, the man who brought us The Shawshank Redemption and The Mist, a film starring everyone's favorite actor, Tom Hanks, in the main role of Paul Edgecombe, the prison guard who comes to realize that his latest death row inmate is not only innocent, but is blessed with a supernatural gift of the power of healing. The movie, directed by Frank Darabont, serves as a spiritual successor to his previous adaptation, The Shawshank Redemption, and functions as a perfect companion piece to that much-beloved film. This week, I'll be reviewing The Green Mile. <clears throat> now, before I get any further, I just want to uh, give a disclaimer. Uh, just as I have over the last couple weeks of reviews, it's still nice outside, it's still summer, so I'm trying to get in as much summer experience as possible while doing this podcast at the same time, so I am outside in my freshly cut backyard, and you might pick up some sounds that otherwise would not be there if I was recording inside currently. The, the wind is blowing. I don't know what that's going to sound like when the microphone picks it up. Uh, you, can, might, you might be able to hear my dogs run, rummaging around, uh, yelling at squirrels, and some cars driving by. So if there's any background noise that's distracting, I apologize. And just send me an email at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com or uh, write to me at, at, at Twitter. Tweet at me. Uh, and let me know if the, the background noise is annoying and it's really taking you out of the experience. So I know going forward uh, to limit my activities in the backyard. Anyway, uh, when it comes to The Green Mile, I had only read the book once before during its original publication before I, I reread it for the purposes of the, the King cast. Now, similarly, I had only seen the movie itself uh, once before, either in the movie theater or on video when it came out. I, I don't really remember which. Only once, and I never saw it again. And I can't really tell you why. It's not like I had any bad memories of it or anything. I think that I even liked it. So I was very interested in revisiting it because I had such a great time rereading the novel and had been just very happy with the craft that went into building the Shawshank Redemption. And there's just something to be said about a movie that's made by a fan of the work. As a result, there's something infectious about Frank Darabont's approach to King's material. And on top of that, this cast is incredible. Tom Hanks, Michael Clark Duncan, David Morse, James Cromwell, Sam Rockwell, Harry Dean Stanton, Bonnie Hunt, Patricia Clarkson, Barry Pepper, Jeffrey DeMunn, with an appearance by Gary Sinise. This movie is stacked with talent. As I sat down to rewatch the movie, I tried remembering just why I never really gave it two thoughts uh, after the first time I'd seen it. And to me, it doesn't make sense. I know it's well-directed. I know it's well-edited. I know that it's well-shot. I know that it's greatly acted. I know that this movie is well-loved. It currently has an 80% rating at Rotten Tomatoes. It has an 8.5 out of 10 on IMDb. I don't know. Maybe it was because by that point, I was tired of Stephen King prison stories, as I had seen The Shawshank Redemption a number of times. Or maybe it was because I was sliding down that other side of my Stephen King fandom hill. Regardless, as I reread the novel, as I prepared for the movie, I loved the idea of the Green Mile functioning as a twinner 
to the Shawshank Redemption. Makes sense after all. King's novels are full of doubling, reflection, cycles, callbacks. So why shouldn't the director of one Stephen King prison movie film the other Stephen King prison movie? One that has your favorite actor in mind, Mr. Tom Hanks. One that has a trained circus mouse. One that has a supernatural element to break the monotony of life on the Green Mile. Why shouldn't I have been more excited about this movie? With these thoughts in mind, I sat down to watch Frank Darabont's The Green Mile. How did it turn out? Let's find out. But first, let me read the Wikipedia summary so I'll have a basis upon which I can build my analysis. But first, um, I, I just want to read a very, very, very quick email from Mike, who writes, Hello. I apologize. I don't know your name. Mine is Mike. I got to tell you, this podcast you do is excellent. I could say a lot, but to make it short, the songs you play at the beginning of your show grabbed me. I relate to Stephen King through music. I'm sorry, I relate to Stephen King first through music. His use of song lyrics and such in the stories has always made such a difference to me. If you ever want to just talk about it, even do a podcast about it, I would love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for doing what you do, Mike. Mike, thank you for writing. Anybody else that wants to uh, write about this particular topic of Stephen King and music, the relationship of his stories and his musical choices, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. If you just want to write about anything, uh, you can just write at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. I've had a lot of emails coming in lately, and I just, as you know, I, I love the discourse. Uh, I, I love getting emails, so feel free. If you've been debating whether or not to write in, please write in. Uh, and I don't know, maybe at some point I will talk about uh, the music in, in Stephen King. Currently, I just finished rereading Wolves of the Kala, and I'll get to it uh, a lot more detail once I get to that particular review. But Elton John's Someone Saved My Life Tonight, to me, is when I think of a song in a Stephen King book, I mean, it, that song is as much a character in Wolves of the Kala as any of uh, the gunslingers that appear in that book. So I, I just, and actually that particular song made me realize that I could do this podcast because music is so interwoven in Stephen King's narratives. Uh, so Mike, thank you for, for writing in. And if you want to write back in, definitely feel free to do so. Now back to uh, the Green Mile. I'm going to do, I'm going to read the Wikipedia summary. In a Louisiana nursing home in 1999, Paul Edgecombe begins to cry while watching the 1935 film Top Hat. His elderly friend, Elaine, shows concern for his behavior, and Paul tells her that the film reminded him of his youth during the summer of 1935. The scene shifts to 1935, where Paul works with his fellow guards, Brutus Brutal Howell, Harry Tewilliger, and Dean Stanton. Unlike the other guards, Paul is a very calm guard and is sympathetic with some inmates. One day, John Coffey, a giant African-American man convicted of raping and killing two young white girls, arrives in the prison sentenced to death row. However, much to the surprise of the other guards and inmates, he is very shy, soft-spoken, and a very emotional person. John reveals extraordinary powers by healing Paul's bladder infection and resurrecting a mouse only by his touch. Later, he heals the terminally ill wife of Warden Hal Moores. When John is asked to explain his power, he merely says that he took it back. 
Meanwhile, Percy Wetmore, a sadist with a fierce temper, has recently begun working in the death row inmates block. His fellow guards dislike him, but are unable to get rid of him because of his family connections to the governor. He requests to manage the execution of Edward Del Delacroix, promising that afterward he will transfer to an administrative post at a mental hospital. An agreement is made, but then Percy, Percy deliberately sabotages the execution. Instead of wetting the sponge used to conduct electricity and make the executions quick and effective, he leaves it dry, causing a disturbing and dramatic malfunction into the execution, leaving Dell to painfully burn to death from the electricity. Meanwhile, a violent psychopath prisoner named Wild Bill Wharton has arrived to be executed for multiple murders committed during a robbery. At one point, he seizes John's arm, and John psychically senses that Wharton is also responsible for the crime for which John was convicted and sentenced to death. John takes back the sickness in Hal's wife and regurgitates it into Percy, who then becomes unable to talk and shoots Wharton to death and falls into a state of permanent catatonia. Percy is then admitted to Briar Ridge Mental Hospital as a patient rather than an administrator. In the wake of these events, Paul interrogates John, who says he has punished the bad men and offers to show Paul what he saw. John takes Paul's hand and says he has to give Paul a part of himself in order for Paul to see what really happened to the girls. Paul asks John what he should do, if he should open the door and let John walk away. John tells him that there's too much pain in the world to which he is sensitive and says he is rightly tired of the pain and is ready to rest. For his last request on the night before his execution, John watches the film Top Hat. When John is put in the electric chair, he, shedding tears, asks Paul not to put the traditional black hood over his head because he is afraid of the dark. Paul agrees, shakes his hand as a goodbye, and John is executed. As an elderly Paul finishes his story, he notes that he requested a transfer to a youth detention center where he spent the remainder of his career. Elaine questions the statement that he had a fully grown son at the time, and Paul explains that he was 44 years old at the time of John's execution, meaning that he is now over 108 years old. This is apparently a side effect of John giving a part of himself to Paul. Mr. Jingles, Dell's mouse resurrected by John, is also still alive, but Paul believes his outliving all of his relatives and friends to be a punishment from God for having let John be executed, and wonders how long it will be before his own death. The film shows glimpses of the future in which Elaine has passed on and Paul is still living in the retirement home. The Warner Brothers logo appears on the screen, followed by our famous and familiar Castle Rock Lighthouse, reminding us that we are indeed about to watch a Stephen King movie. We then begin with a hunt through the tall grass. Darabont slows it down. The scene is weighed with importance. From the style of clothes, we get a sense of the time period. At first, we might think that it's just a hunting party, but when the father of the two dead girls gets a scrap of cloth, we can assume that it's not a hunting expedition, but a search party. In the distance, we can hear the dogs barking, and we are given our title card. We then meet old Paul Edgecombe, and I'm so glad that Darabont decided on casting an older actor rather than just putting Tom Hanks in old age makeup. Paul walks us through the retirement home, and we soon learn about his long walks. Darabont poses the question of where Paul goes on those long walks. He sneaks out, and the actor um, is shot beautifully against the striking natural locations. 
Now, maybe I was reading too fast, or I glossed over King's descriptions from the book, but I don't recall the elegance and the beauty of Paul's walks. Regardless, I'm glad that Darabont and the cinematographer are in charge here because it makes it special. That night, while watching television, a fellow retirement resident changes the channel to putting on the Ritz, and Fred Astaire singing causes Paul to have an emotional reaction. It sends him back to the past, and later he decides to open up to Ellie again, framed beautifully against the rain pouring down the big windows. Paul tells Ellie, and us, of his past as a prison guard on the Green Mile. He tells of old Sparky, his urinary tract infection, John Coffey, and the two dead girls. With that, we step back into the past, to the 1930s, on a chain gang, a scene not included in the book, but one that does wonders for establishing the setting. A van drives past the chain gang and pulls up to the prison. Darabont uses it as a way to establish our location while preparing for the arrival of John Coffey. We meet Brutal and Dean and then Tom Hanks in agony as he tries to go to the bathroom. Now it might have come across as silly, but it's important to see him in agony. And of course, Hanks knows how to make every moment count. Even how he writes and tries to compose himself once Brutal's back is turned. From there, it's all about coffee. We see just how giant he is. How his mass weighs down the car. And Doug Hutchinson, playing Percy, gets to shout his dead man walking call. From Paul's reaction, we already know how the characters feel about Percy. And though he isn't exactly how I pictured from the book, Hutchinson does such a good job at being annoying. As Coffee walks past the bars, we're given glimpses to the other prisoners. And all the while, we still don't even see John Coffee's face. It's a great way to show the size of Coffee. Now, so far, the novel itself is playing out exactly like the book. Percy's obnoxious, Paul is doing everything he can to withholding his anger at him, asking him to leave. Percy takes out his anger on Dell. Paul and Coffee shake hands, and it's hard not to feel for Michael Clark Duncan's performance of Coffee. He's a massive human being who radiates vulnerability. Back in Paul's office, the boys talk about Percy and Coffee, and soon after a while, while Paul reads about what occurred at the Dederick farm, Darabont flashes to the parents' reaction and subsequent search, which kicked off the movie, except now we see John Coffey. There is an incredible shot of Coffey from behind holding the girls as he looks to the sky, screaming. Such a large man looks so small against the world, which only produces hate and cruelty. Coffey tells the search party that he tried to help it, but it was too late. It's a sad and incredibly effective scene. We then meet Warden Moores, played by James Cromwell, who has a seat with Paul and they discuss Melinda's tumor. The conversation turns to Percy and his unpredictability. James Cromwell, by the way, has the distinction of appearing in another Stephen King film, the TNT 2004 remake of Salem's Lot, and he played the one and only Father Callahan. That night, Paul spends some time with his wife, Jan. It's not a big scene and it's probably not even necessary. But it shows the life of these people, which is important, especially when you have a cast like this playing them. It might be slow, and it might add to the ridiculous three-plus-hour running time, but I want to know these characters. There's a sense of filming mastery at work here, and less than a half an hour in, I'm looking forward to seeing what Darabont and company have in store for me. We then meet Mr. Jingles, whose appearance is the talk of the Green Mile. It shows the kindness and curiosity of the guards, which could have been easily portrayed as wanting to exterminate the mouse. 
Darabont injects a little humor as the men attempt to get the mouse um, while military drums are beating away. Again, it's not an important scene, but it's fun. One of the things that I loved as much as I did about the book was that it made me feel like I worked on the Green Mile. Now, scenes like this, a break in the otherwise monotonous routine of day-to-day life, are necessary in putting us in the lives of these men. Later, Mr. Jingles comes back and is spotted by Percy, who is interrupted whistling and staring at himself in the mirror. Percy, again, demonstrates how out of step he is with the other characters by attempting to kill Mr. Jingles, who is adorable, by the way. I have to give props to Darabont for giving us close-ups on the little guy. Percy loses it, stomps and smashes and tries to murder the mouse, causing Paul and Brutal to come running in. Percy pushes Paul and Brutal's buttons, refusing to take the advice of his boss, and Brutal and Paul in their own ways threaten him. If not a threat, then they are demonstrating that they're not going to put up with this tomfoolery. Darabont then walks us through the practice run of walking the Green Mile, and we meet Old Toot Toot, played expertly by Harry Dean Stanton, who goes through the motions in the same annoying way his novel counterpart had done, verbally narrating each and every action as he goes through it. It's great to watch Stanton make this little character come to life, and I can't help but think that he was cast because King had named one of his characters Dean Stanton. Or if it was just a coincidence. Now, regardless, I love whenever Stanton shows up in a film, and his crass jokes that set everyone off allows Paul to rise above it all, showing why he's the boss. Then Percy and we learn about the sponge, which we know will play a significant part later on. When Toot is strapped in, it's horrifying. It's a great way to build the tension and the horror of the experience of an electrocution. There's a time lapse as the boys clean the room to fit the spectators, and Dean shaves Bitterbuck's head to get him ready for old Sparky. It's a nice, quiet scene between he and Paul. And then when we, what we just saw as a joke is played out for real as Bitterbuck is marched through the Green Mile to old Sparky, and we see the first of our three electrocutions. After the execution of Bitterbuck, Percy and Paul discuss Percy's future, and Percy puts it in our ear that he'd like to be out front at the next execution. Delacroix then shows off Mr. Jingle's skills, adding a little joy onto the green mile and watching Mr. Jingles push the spool is absurdly cute. Moores then lets Paul know about both the arrival of Wharton and Melinda's tumor. Speaking of sickness, we see more of Paul's painful urinary tract infection, which causes him to collapse on his knees and urinate lying down. The next day, the boys pick up Sam Rockwell's William Wharton, and the scene plays out just as it does in the book. As Hutchinson and Rockwell play off of each other, it's clear that Darabont could just have easily switched their roles. A baby-faced Rockwell could slip inside of Percy's abrasive shoes, and Hutchinson could very easily play the slimy, aggressive Wharton. Now, Darabont has the benefit of knowing the ending, unlike King, who had been writing it in installments. So when Wharton arrives and Coffee senses something, it's because Darabont knows the relationship between these two men. It's not a big moment, but it's enough that it'll pay off in the end. As Dean is choked up by Wharton, we see Percy's cowardice and Brutal's quick thinking. It's chaotic, and through Wharton's arrival, we see Paul's vulnerability when he gets hit in the crotch. And later, when he limps through the mile, we see how devastating this urinary tract infection is. Every movement he takes is one of sheer willpower to stop from constantly screaming. So when he lays down in the middle of the mile out of exhaustion and pain, we believe it. 
But going back to Wharton's arrival, we are given the dangerousness of this man, the strength of Brutal, the weakness of Percy. It's an action that gives us so much about these characters. At one hour in, we get our first supernatural moment as an exhausted Paul is grabbed by coffee. As coffee pulls the sickness from Paul, Darabont frames it with the lights growing brighter and brighter, which is needed to show that coffee isn't just grabbing Paul's crotch. And then, just as in the book, coffee hacks out a swarm of insects, and it's disgusting. It's well done, though. Paul, meanwhile, has an immediate transformation. The look of masked torment has dropped from his face, and I am so glad that Tom Hanks was the one that was cast in this role. He's someone so in control of his craft that we can see a distinct before and after performance, and neither is flashy, but nevertheless pronounced. And the look on his face as he urinates without pain is not something that just anyone could pull off. It can't be portrayed as goofy. It has to come across as a serious moment, and it works. A healthy and recharged Paul makes up for lost time with Jan. Paul, having just been touched by a miracle, immediately seeks out answers and meets up with the reporter Hammersmith, allowing the viewers a reunion between Tom Hanks and Gary Sinise. Stu Redman himself, guys! Two actors who have co-starred in at least three movies together. And the two actors know their rhythms at this point, so in this scene together, while brief, it's still a strong one. And Sinise is perfect for the part because Hammersmith is someone who is thoroughly wrong in his belief of coffee, but who is also in his heart, in his own way, a good man who loves his son and whose viewpoints are shaped by an experience when his son had almost been killed. Later in the Green Mile, Paul makes his way uh, interacting with Coffee, then Dell, then Wharton, which leads to a series of moments when Sam Rockwell gets to seriously ham it up, resulting with him urinating on Jeffrey DeMunn's shoes, which ends with DeMunn hosing him down and Wharton getting thrown, straightjacketed into the restraint room. It's a lot of fun to watch uh, because Rockwell is just playing dumb and loud and angry and obnoxious. He is just so thoroughly loathsome, you can't help but love it. He just keeps getting in trouble, keeps getting locked up, keeps getting in trouble, keeps getting locked up. It's, it's awesome. It's then time for Tutu to go through the practice execution again as Dell lets Mr. Jingles perform for the admin brass. Darabont gives us Wharton's assault on Percy and Percy's complete breakdown as a result, which sets up the bad death of Edward Delacroix. As Percy wets himself, I just realized how much urination there is in this movie. At a half an hour in, there's been at least five instances of people taking a leak. Paul at least three times, Wharton on the Twilliger, and Percy in his pants. Later, Delacroix has his final moments with Mr. Jingles, and Paul and Brutal do what they can to ease his conscience before going. And brutally, seriously guys, brutally, Percy comes and ruins the moment by squashing Mr. Jingles. It's a cruel moment and hard to watch. Now again, I've said this before, the fact that we care as much about this mouth, mouse is a testament to Darabont's ability to make us care. Paul hands over Mr. Jingles to Coffee, who heals him with a flash of light and the CGI insects, which again don't bother me as much as I remember them bothering me when I had first watched it. The guards watch the insects fly out of his mouth and disappear, necessary for the events soon to come. Mr. Jingles, now alive again, heads back to the soon-to-be-executed Delacroix. And then Paul and Brutal shove Percy in the electric chair and remind Percy of his agreement to leave for Briar Ridge. 
Though they seem to be in charge, all that's happened is to spur Percy to get revenge on Dell in a harrowing scene full of lightning, thunder, and rain. The bad death of Edward Delacroix is one of King's most harrowing chapters, and Darabont manages to capture the tragedy and frustration of the moment. The actor playing Dell sells it, especially when he walks in and quietly crumbles when he sees Percy. Darabont plays down the moment. In the book, Dell had a verbal reaction. This is worse, worse in a good way. There's such utter defeat and despair in body language, knowing that his hated enemy is going to be the one to kill him. Percy talks trash uh, to Delacroix in the moment before he dies, and we see that he does not wet the sponge, which is then realized by Paul too late. A good choice by Darapont. Now, in the book, King had made Paul realize a little earlier, and he doesn't do anything, which makes him complicit, in a way, in the bad death of Delacroix. Darabont cuts from the execution to the Green Mile where Wharton whoops and hollers and coffee convulses. It's an added scene and unfortunately makes it a little cheesier than it needs to be. However, he films Delacroix's murder with great effects. Blue fire engulfs his head and his chest, and Paul forces Percy to watch his action. The scene itself is complete chaos. The confusion and panic is palpable, and as Percy steps to the smoking ruin of Delacroix's body, it's amazing how much he looks like a child. And then, over the charred and mangled body of Delacroix, they confront Percy over his actions. Paul and Jan go to visit Melinda Moores, which will set Paul on the course of action to bust Coffee out in order to heal her. The boys drug Wharton and round up Percy, roping him into the straight jacket and locking him in a rubber room. The boys load their weapons, not that they'll be needed, and get Coffee out of the mile. As John leaves, Coffee and Wharton have a moment in which Wharton grabs a hold of him and Darabont highlights the supernatural aspects of whatever is occurring with the lights blowing out. There's something magical about John seeing the stars again for the last time. His childlike sense of wonder is infectious, and it makes this whole scene bittersweet. Darabont and the cinematographer give the night an otherworldly quality. Everything is lit by the shine of the moon and the fireflies that dance above the ground. They get to the moors, and naturally, moors does not react well to an alleged child murderer showing up to his house. From the inside of the house, Melinda cries and screams, reminding the audience why John is there in the first place. Coffee steps up the stairs and gently takes control of the situation. As for the healing scene, Darabont opts to film it very seriously and very sweetly. He imbues the room with magic as Melinda's mouth glows and bathes everyone in a heavenly light. I wish that Darabont had decided to play up what King had presented in the novel with a suggestion of an exorcism. It could have played up the darkness that lurks in this world, which King had prevented as, sorry, presented as an aggressively antagonistic threat to John Coffey's light. That's missing from this movie, so it makes sense that Darabont doesn't film it this way. But I would have liked to have some, to seen a, uh, just a brief change in tone. They get back, they get John back to the mile and all hell breaks loose. As soon as they let Percy out, Coffee uses his power to use Percy as a gun, causing him to murder Wharton. Just as in the book, I feel as though this lessens the character of Coffee, which tinges the story with a sadness, knowing that the lower qualities of humanity have infected our saintly martyr. 
Coffee then shares with Paul why he did what he did, and Paul receives a vision of the Dederick family eating with Wharton and Wharton killing the girls. Paul lets John watch a movie to experience some joy in his final moments, and then they walk John down the mile, and John lets Paul and us know that it will be okay. We know it's going to be a hard scene to watch, especially with the death of Delacroix so fresh in our minds. And our heroes have to stand there and kill this man whose execution has brought out a horde of people to leer and jeer at the miracle man. Our boys do their jobs and emotion fills the room. Paul does his best to remain stone-faced and professional and Coffee's last words, I'm sorry for what I am, is truly painful to hear. Just as in the book they strap him in, and Coffee is not stoic or unafraid. He's crying, he's terrified. It makes it so very difficult to watch. And Darabont knows that it's his job to make sure that it's not easy for us, which is how it should be. I mean, this should not be a feel-good movie. And maybe that's some confusion out there for people coming in from, the, from uh, Shawshank Redemption thinking that that feel-good movie will be translated or transferred over here to Stephen King's other prison movie. Brutal prompts Paul to do what he has to do, but before he can say the words, he shakes John's hand for forgiveness and a goodbye, and Hanks gives it all with glassy eyes and a weary voice. He calls to roll on two, and coffee is executed just like that. Darabot doesn't focus on the jerking body of coffee, but on the lights that explode all around Paul. Uh, you'll probably know the shot. I, I'm not sure if it was in the trailers, but it's an iconic, iconic shot from the movie. We then cut back to the present with old Paul, who takes Ellie for a walk to the cabin, where we see Mr. Jingles again, proof of coffee's lasting legacy. And with old Paul, Darabont does what King had done as well showing us that his presence isn't to show us a narration technique, but to show us punishment for killing an agent of God. It's easy for people to get caught up in the look of the movie, and the healing, and the miracles, and the goodness they feel when they see Tom Hanks, but this is a brutal message, a brutal ending. This guy has lost everything in his life. He's stuck in a retirement home. He's all alone cursed to watch everyone in his life die while he lives on and on. Alright guys, so here's some final thoughts. Uh, in previous reviews of King adaptations, I've discussed how a director crams in everything they can from the book and how it doesn't necessarily work on the screen. Now here, Darabont faithfully, like very faithfully, adapts the novel and it works almost better than any other King adaptation that I've ever encountered. And I'm usually not someone who likes it when a director translate it, you know, translates it beat by beat. But what Darabont does is allow his actors to act and allows the scenes space to breathe. We get a sense of who these people are, which is essential in this story working. And King has done the same in the book, which worked. Carrot Bear, sorry, Darabont does it here and it works as well. It doesn't hurt that every part is cast to perfection with incredible actors who, when they bounce off each other, makes for electric performances. No pun intended. So what I want to do now, it's the showdown, book versus movie. What's it going to be? First, let's talk about Brutal. Uh, so 
in the book we have Brutal who is Paul's right hand man good friend uh, and, and similarly here in the movie and Brutal is played by David Morse who is incredible here he captures the quiet dignity uh, of being Paul's right hand man perfectly now I see this as making up for his unfortunate turn in the Langoliers adaptation and David Morse not only will have starred in here, The Green Mile, and The Langoliers, but will also star in the uh, Anthony Hopkins starring vehicle, Hearts in Atlantis, as well as voicing the, the, the narration for a number of Stephen King audiobooks. So he is a, he's a, a, uh, he's a familiar face and a familiar voice to Stephen King fans everywhere. But I just really like what, what Brutal did what he did as brutal so you know what i'm gonna go with david morse and then we have percy percy in the book or doug hutchinson now this one's tough this one's really tough guys because doug hutchinson uh does such a fantastic job you know he kind of has been immortalized as percy he's actually kind of been immortalized for his real life creepy uh dating life and I'm not really going to get into it but all you have to do is just google Doug Hutchinson uh, marriage god is he married did he marry her anyway so just that's something to look into Uh, but he's also immortalized by his performance as Percy but then again Stephen King also crafted an incredible character with Percy Wetmore but you know what I gotta say that the reasons why this movie works as well as it does is because of the performances so I don't know. I'm going to go with Doug Hutchinson on this one. Then we have John Coffey. He's giant, wet-eyed, and fragile. Michael Clark Duncan brought this character to life in a way that I can't see anybody else doing. And I love John Coffey in the book, but something about Michael Clark Duncan that he brings so much vulnerability. It's like he was born to play this role. I'm going to go with Michael Clark Duncan. And Paul, it's not even close to Tom Hanks. It's Tom Hanks. I mean, how can you go wrong? It's Tom Hanks. Seriously. Um, when Tom Hanks is in a movie, you, 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 you pay attention. And I'm so glad that Tom Hanks managed to be in, uh, in a Stephen King film. He, he takes, you know what? The Stephen King main character can sometimes come across as, as very, you know, one-dimensional. Uh, you know, because they're just good guys, right? You know, and... At, at the worst, you know, we have, um, you know, Ben Mears from Salem's Lot. Or uh, we have uh, Mike Anderson from Storm of the Century, played by Tim Daly, which I'll get to um, in my review soon. And they're just kind of stock characters, and they don't do much, right? That's why I've said in other reviews why I would like a character to, to come in with with some something within themselves and, and bring something to the character, you know, whether it be, you know, Johnny Depp brings some uh, some idiosyncrasies or Christopher Walken, right, as, as Johnny Smith. Um, and here we have Tom Hanks. We have Tom Hanks being Tom Hanks, but, you know, like just like, you know, Tom Hanks is able to play variations of, I don't want to say the same character, but... He, he knows how to regulate and differentiate his performances and it was just good for him to bring out that 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 love we all have for the guy uh, and apply it to the Stephen King character so I got you know I mean, Tom Hanks is great so looking at my notes right now 
I my notes are telling me to tell you that I'm going to go with the book. But as I'm sitting down recording this, I can't in good conscience actually say that the book is better than this movie. Because I was really surprised when I re, when I rewatched this movie. I really really enjoyed it. So I've listed every actor as being a more enjoyable aspect of this than their novel counterparts so I guess I'm just going to have to do the same for uh, the movie as a whole and what is chirping above me what is that you know I, I don't know guys like I said I don't know if this is distracting I don't know if it sounds like I'm in Jurassic Park but um, let me know let me know if you want me to go back inside anyway I am I'm going with the the movie I enjoyed the movie so much I uh, so in the 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 big uh, fight between book versus movie, I gotta go with the movie. And if you disagree, feel free to write in at Stephen Kingcast at yahoo.com. All right, guys. So that concludes my review of this week. It also concludes my my examination of the Green Mile as a whole. And next week, make sure that you come back for my review of. 1996, I think September, I'm going to say September 24th, September 24th, 1996 dual release of Stephen King's Desperation and Richard Bachman's The Regulators. I'm very excited about next week. It was such a joy to go back and reread these novels. So if you are a Desperation fan, make sure you give Regulators a chance. If you are a Regulators fan, make sure that you give Desperation a chance. And... Uh, May you have long days, everybody, and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next week where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast.